This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Welcome to this week's episode. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Tim Schrader. He is the medical director of the HIP program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and we're going to be talking all about hip dysplasia today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Schrader. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited that you were able to join us. Um, Hip dysplasia is actually something I obviously think is really important, but not a lot of parents know about it until their child is diagnosed with it. So I've been getting a lot of questions from my social media following. I take care of patients myself with hip dysplasia. So I'm really happy you could join us today. Great. So first of all, I wanted to talk about what exactly is hip dysplasia? What does that mean and how common is it? Hip dysplasia is any abnormality between the femoral head and the acetabulum or the, the ball and the socket part of the hip joint. It's really a, a catchphrase. It's a, there's a continuum. There are very mild forms of hip dysplasia where on x-ray or ultrasound or by MRI, there's some structural abnormalities, but nothing can be detected on physical examination. There's hip is not dislocated. And then it can go all the way through to hips that are loose or unstable or dislocated, uh, where you can physically feel the hip slipping in and out of socket. Um, And the other question about how common it is really depends on how you define it. So some of these Mm -hmm. really subtle things are very common in newborns. You know, one in 10 newborns may have some hip looseness after they're born with 90% of that resolving on its own very quickly. Um, If you use an ultrasound in the nursery to diagnose hip dysplasia, the incidence is is, is quite high. Um, I think most pediatric orthopedic surgeons would tell you the incidence of true hip dysplasia that would benefit from treatment is is about one in a thousand births. Okay. And are there certain risk factors for the hip dysplasia that does need treatment? Uh, yes, there are certainly uh, uh, risk factors for hip dysplasia. The more common ones that uh, yeah, we typically learn about during uh, medical school and training are breach positioning, um, being a firstborn uh, and females, and having had a, a immediate family member, a parent or sibling with hip dysplasia as well, so the family history. Um, there's also some other more recent things that have come up, um, uh, particularly swaddling. So mm. if we recreate a tight intrauterine environment after birth, we can create the same risks uh, that are there and actually can cause hip dysplasia to develop or take hips that may have 
responded on their own and gotten better without any formal treatment and pushed them over the edge to where they became true hip dysplasia that actually does need treatment. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about this because that is one of the questions I commonly get. So is there just a certain thing that parents need to be watching out for when they swaddle their babies? Or do you think that swaddling is just too risky for the hips? Or what would your thoughts on swaddling be? Um, no, I think there's a lot of benefits uh, to swaddling. Um, temperature regulation, startle reflex, uh, increased sleeping. Oh, there's a lot of benefits to swaddling, but it can be done in a manner that is safe for the hips. So uh, there are videos online uh, at uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in their hip program. We have a video on how to swaddle a baby with a blanket in order to uh, have the arms be snug but have the hips be free. Uh, there's commercial devices, uh, sleep sacks, and other things that are uh, deemed to be safe for the hips. The uh, key to swaddling to keep the hips in a good position is to not have the knees and thighs squeezed together and more so have the babies in a frog position or a human position where the hips and the knees can be upward and outward so that there's room for the legs to kind of move side to side with space between the knees. Uh, the arms can be swaddled nice and tight. Um, so I think swaddling is good. There's a lot of benefits and it can be done in a way that uh, protects the hips and benefits the baby. And along those lines, the other question I get asked is about carriers. So whether that's slings, whether that's um, baby wear, any thoughts about that? Um, I think uh, there's uh, better carriers than, than others. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we're trying to keep the baby's hips. And this is, I think, most important the first couple of months after that age. The babies are getting a little bit more muscular and moving themselves a little bit more, and it becomes less of an issue. Uh, most parents don't swaddle after three months uh, anyways. Uh, but the baby carriers that allow the legs to be upward and outward, um, I describe it as a koala bear position or a bear hug where the you know babies tummy is towards the parent's tummy uh, and the legs straddle the parent. I think that's a safe position for the hips. Um, I think if a carrier can support the underside of the thigh so that the legs in the thigh segment is supported by the carrier, that's better than just a thin support through the midline where the legs sort of dangle down. Um, I think babies can face forward or backwards and be carried equally well. And I try to avoid or recommend avoiding, so I call them hammock carriers or slings where the babies kind of fold up in a hammock where their knees mm -hmm. get pre pressed together. So uh, there's lots of commercial products. Many of them are, are, are quite good. Key is to try to separate the knees and avoid that kind of burrito, knees, thighs, squeeze together position. No, that's great. When I, I'm a new mom, well, now 14 month old, but when I was looking for all the carriers, I mean, there are so many out there. So I think that's a really great tip so that parents can kind of differentiate, okay, this might be a little more compact for my child and may not be so great. And there are, like you said, great ones on the market that would be a little more preferred. Now you mentioned something about the, obviously as the baby grows, there's less risk. Is there a certain age that you see this more commonly with? Is there an age that you will say the risk of hip dysplasia is very low? I know you mentioned obviously three months um, by then most babies are not being swaddled or is there any way to know for sure? So the three month mark was sort of referring to the swaddling and where mm -hmm. the, the position that we put the babies in increases their risk of developing hip dysplasia. Um, they certainly have a significant risk of dysplasia even beyond that age. Um, undiagnosed or uh, 
adolescent hip dysplasia, young adult hip dysplasia is one of the more common reasons why people under 50 years of age have total hip replacements. Um, mm. We recommend screening. The Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has some uh, recommendations on what age groups and what children should be screened for hip dysplasia. It's typically the higher risk category, so abnormal physical exam, thigh crease asymmetry, one leg appearing longer than the other, one hip stiffer than the other, family history, breech babies, they all are recommended to have an ultrasound screening around six weeks of age. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the breech girls are at such a significant risk of developing hip dysplasia, even with a normal ultrasound, it's recommended that they have repeat pelvic x-ray screening at around six to eight months of age. So the, the risk of hip dysplasia is there. Um, the screening is done when the babies are younger because our treatments are a lot easier uh, in the babies than they are once the kids are at a walking age. At that point, some of our positioning devices and harnesses that we utilize in the babies are no longer effective and we're having to uh, put kids in body casts, spica casts, and sort of more surgically manage the dysplasia at that age. So detecting it early is super important. So going back to those risk factors, breech positioning, um, that would make sense, I think, for everyone listening, just the way that the, um, the hips are placed in utero. Why is firstborn and females? Um, I think maybe, maybe my listeners don't know about why that would predispose them to um, hip dysplasia, and maybe briefly talking about why breech positioning, too. Yeah, so uh, in a frank breech where you're, the baby's feet are up by their head, uh, if you think of the the ball part of the ball and socket joint at the end of the thigh bone uh, in that position with the legs vertical uh, straight up by their head, the hip bone is really pointing completely out of the socket. If the babies are in a human position or that kind of frog position, the ball of the hip joint is pointing directly into the socket. So that's why the frog position, human position is, is great for hip development and the uh, uh, legs all the way up by their head or all the way down straight is, is typically not as good for, for the uh, baby positioning. So that's why breech babies are associated, highly associated with hip dysplasia. Um, firstborns, we think it's a packing issue. So mm -hmm. the, the, the uterus, uh, the, the womb where the baby is positioned just isn't as large. It's, it's more, it's a little tighter. So it's, it's a space issue and there's not as much movement, not as much room for the baby's legs to, to separate. Um, most babies are carried at the last trimester with their left hip up against the mother's tailbone, her sacrum, and the right hip is sort of generally facing towards the, the belly button area. And hip dysplasia is more common on the left side, again, because that left hip doesn't have as much room to move in majority of babies as it does on the right side. Um, the family history and the females, we feel that the females are a little bit more sensitive to the maternal hormones that are passed. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of hormones that are necessary in order to let childbirth happen. And the females, the relaxin hormones and all just seem to affect the, the girls more so than the boys. And I think they have a little excess laxity in their hip that makes them susceptible to the hip dysplasia. Yeah, that's really important for people to hear because I think, you know, again, when people find out their child has it, they're like, wait, how did this happen? Every parent's first thing is, did I do something that I shouldn't have, which is not the case. It's really, truly, in so many of these cases, things that are out of our control. Please remember that. Obviously, things like swaddling and choosing the right carriers, we can find the most optimal thing. But breech positioning, firstborn females, I mean, these are all things we can't control. So this is why this episode is so important as education. 
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes no shopping prepping cooking or cleanup i work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are head to factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 and use code pedsdoctalk50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that's code pedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. So you mentioned the imaging, obviously ultrasounds, um, x-rays. So now if we make that diagnosis, I know it's, it's probably more detailed than we have time for, but what is the overall management? You mentioned some harnessing and some casting. What does that kind of look like? Um, so in really young children with minor abnormalities, we sometimes just monitor and uh, mm-hmm. things will resolve so we can uh, 
place the babies in a, in a better position for, uh, you know, avoid swaddling or some of the things that, that, that we can do to position the hips better, repeat the ultrasound. And uh, frequently some of these uh, six week old minor abnormalities will resolve on their own. Um, for those that don't, or for the hips that are unstable where they're slipping in and out of socket, uh, uh, dislocating or dislocated, uh, we typically use a device called a Pavlik harness. It's named after a, a Polish uh, surgeon who developed a pediatrician actually who developed this device um, and it's a uh, it, it looks like a jumper there's uh, straps mm -hmm. that go around the shoulders and the chest area little booties for each feet and then connections between the booties and the chest strap that limit the baby's ability to straighten their hips all the way and also encourage the legs to frog out to the side so it, again it puts the babies in that human position where the ball is pointing as best it can into the socket to allow the capsule and the lining tissue around the hips to tighten up and hold it in the appropriate place. Um, the Pavlik is typically my go-to treatment for kids up to six months of age. Between six and 12 months of age, I use a uh, more of a plastic rigid device called a abduction orthosis, an abduction brace. And it has plastic that goes around the backside mm -hmm. and the back of the thighs with foam and Velcro around the thighs. And it also holds the legs in a frog type position, a little bit more rigid than the Pavlik does. And that's needed in the older kids where they have more muscle strength, where they're starting to roll, sit, stand, pull up, cruise, walk, all of which can be allowed in the rhino brace uh, when the kids are at that developmental point. And in terms of the monitoring, meaning how often they're seeing the specialist, um, you know, to monitor the, cast, the um, harness, it really depends on the severity and the situation, correct? Yes, ma'am. So in the yeah. beginning, when I first put the Pavlix on, I generally see the kids every week because I want to make sure the parents are good, the child is good, that the hip is stabilizing. Once we're sort of in a little in a rhythm and the, the family's uh, understanding how the harness works and the child's uh, adapted to it and the hip is stabilized, I typically see those kids every two to three weeks. Um, the Pavlik needs to be adjusted for growth, and that happens pretty quickly in the newborns. Um, the Rhino brace is a, you know, I can go much longer periods of time. The abduction brace, I can go six weeks between visits because it, there's not as much adjustment there. The babies are a little bit older. They're still growing, but not quite as fast as the, the really young infants. No, that, this is really great information. I, I think it's so important, like I said, that we parents understand how this process works. Uh, in terms of the duration of needing the cast, that also depends. Do you see good outcomes when families do get the proper intervention and timely intervention? Um, yes. So the whole goal of diagnosing the hip dysplasia early um, is to prevent future problems and the Pavlik harness or a rhino brace or even the, the, the surgeries that, that we utilize when the kids are older um, have very good outcomes. Uh, it's certainly less invasive with the Pavlik. Um, you asked about how long these devices are typically mm -hmm. used. I'd say it's six to 12 weeks would be sort of typical uh, Pavlik harness time. Um, the babies are growing so fast and the changes in the cartilage and the hip and the stability, uh, they change so frequently on ultrasounds that it doesn't take very long to positively influence a baby's hips so that they are normal and developed correctly uh, throughout the rest of their lifetime. And you mentioned um, through the episode that one of the risks of having hip dysplasia later in life, meaning if you never got it corrected, it's actually a leading cause of needing a hip replacement later in life? Yes. So um, 
even babies that are treated with a pavlic harness or an abduction brace who have normal x-rays, normal exam, it appears to be a successful treatment, I recommend, and a lot, a lot of the orthopedic surgeons recommend, following those kids every couple of years with x-rays to make sure that they don't redevelop adolescent hip dysplasia and right. that their hips are truly normal when they are mature. Um, in the adolescence, young adults, if they have residual dysplasia, there's more pressure on the cartilage. There's potential for wearing down, causing tearing of the cartilage, tearing of the labrum, and ultimately developing arthritis. Some of the hip dysplasia in the young adults is quite subtle, and it takes a a fairly high uh, trained eye to come up, uh, diagnose some of these subtle dysplasias. And if diagnosed in early stages before significant arthritis, there are operations for young adults where the socket can be cut and rotated to basically treat the hip dysplasia and prevent that degeneration and hopefully eliminate the need for hip replacements or arthritis in later life. So all hope is not lost if you don't treat this as a baby, but a Pavlik uh, for six weeks is a lot uh, simpler treatment than an osteotomy as a young adult. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't mention when I introduced you, but I know you said you're the medical director of the HIP program, but in terms of your training, you're an orthopedic surgeon. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I wanted to mention that because people, you know, obviously may not know what that means in terms of the hip program. But yes, so um, Dr. Schrader is an orthopedic surgeon. And so this is who you will see if you have a child with um, hip dysplasia or concern of that. So some parents are just very against imaging tests, things that may not be necessary. And they're like, well, my child looks great. They were breached, but things are going good. And I am, as obviously as a pediatrician, I screen all those babies with um, ultrasounds like we talked about. Um, and so I think it's really important that parents hear that like you said about having a pavic harness for six weeks versus having um, a procedure later in life, it's also just important to do the screening earlier to see if we need to do any intervention versus later finding out that they had hip dysplasia. So do you think that the screening methods that are in place with the AP and the American Academy of like osteopath, or, or sorry, orthopedic surgeons, do you think that it's a, it's good screening methods right now? Um, I think that's quite controversial. There are mm -hmm. many, many countries, European countries, where every baby gets an ultrasound at two to four weeks of age. They just screen everybody. Um, in the United States, we've employed more of a selective screening. So it, I guess it's, 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 it's incorrect to say that we don't screen every baby because you as a pediatrician screens every baby by physical exam. Yes. We just, yes. We, we just screen the higher risk kids with an imaging method in the United States. And I think um, no, no screening method is perfect. Um, there are children who have normal ultrasounds who develop dysplasia later in life. So screening everybody might still miss some of those. Our selective screening might, might miss some children, but I think it's, a, I think it's really good. And I've been in practice at uh, Children's uh, in Atlanta for 20 years, and the number of children that I see with hip dislocations at age two or three or four has gone down significantly after sort of our community-wide adoption of these screening methods. So I think they work. Are they perfect? Do they never miss any cases of hip dysplasia? No, but no screening system is perfect, and I think yeah. this is a very effective method of looking for the higher-risk children. Absolutely agree with that. Now, thank you so much. I mean, this was so helpful and obviously just so educational for myself and then also my listeners. Um, any final advice for any parent listening? Maybe they have their child who was just diagnosed with this. Any um, final words of advice or thoughts for them? I guess my final words of wisdom would be 
there's a lot of emotions being a new parent and being diagnosed with hip dysplasia uh, can really add a lot of stress to an already stressful emotional time. Um, six, eight, 12 weeks of treatment with a Pavlik. Looking back on it, I think every family I've ever treated looks back at it and says, that was way easier, way shorter. I don't even remember that part of it um, than when they first got the diagnosis. So I think it's important to remember it's, it's very treatable. It's, it's fixable. You're, you're changing the baby's hips positively for the rest of their life um, with a relatively brief intervention. Uh, the harnesses and the braces, they're not painful. And then I also mm -hmm. wanted to say, like, like you mentioned, uh, hip dysplasia, it's, it's, it's a silent condition. So the babies, they don't hurt. If you're in the office and examining a hip, I can dislocate, reduce, pop a hip in and out of place, and the babies don't cry. So mm -hmm. they, they don't tell you something is wrong. So this is truly uh, our job to examine and screen for these and, and help these kids out before they develop symptoms. Once they develop symptoms, there's already some breakdown, some wear and tear that's happened. Um, and, you know, we love to catch these children and treat them before that happens. Absolutely agree. Dr. Schrader, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to be attaching the maybe the resources from the Children's Hospital, um, Children's Health Care of Atlanta. You mentioned there was like a video on swaddling and any resources for any families who are in the Atlanta area or just want to experience, obviously, meet Dr. Schrader if your child does have hip dysplasia. I think that would be great. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I appreciate your time and uh, I love getting the message out about screening for hip dysplasia, that there are safe ways to swaddle and there's very effective treatments that we have for these children. Thank you again. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. Are you tired of searching Google and ending up in a rabbit hole at 2 a.m. thinking that you're ruining your kid? Stop and visit pedsdoctalk.com. My website is your new Google with a search feature to search all content that I have that is free or available by purchase. And let me tell you, there are a lot of free goodies there, like free printable PDFs for how to handle a choking incident to milestones to monitor in your kid. My website provides information regarding the health and development of your child, including parenting and sleep. My goal is that you stop those middle-of-the-night searches that lead you nowhere but into the land of anxiety. My goal is to guide you to be the confident and calm parent I know that you are. Make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and use the magnifying glass to search. Want even more? Make sure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting pedsdoctalk.com newsletter, where you can get the latest and greatest in child health news and parenting tips delivered directly to your inbox. That's pedsdoctalk.com newsletter.